Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I'm speaking with data and analytics expert and political polling thought leader, Mike Berland. He's the founder and CEO of the research data and analytics firm DecodeM, and is an expert on how people think and behave as voters and decision makers. Mike has appeared extensively on national television to speak about elections, candidates, and business issues. He served as a strategic advisor to politicians like Michael Bloomberg and Hillary Clinton, and MSNBC has called him a genius pollster. Mike and I talk about what the heck happened in the election, how polls should really be used, and how to harness the power of momentum to affect positive change in our society. Now, here's my conversation with Mike Berland. Mike Berland, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Hi, Nancy. I'm happy to be here. So, Mike, today we are going to do a little post-election post-mortem on this episode and take a stab at figuring out what the heck just happened. So we are recording this two weeks after the election, although it feels a lot longer than two weeks. (laughs) It's only two weeks. It feels like months ago. Exactly. And it's only 10 days ago or so that Joe Biden was declared the winner. So we have a lot to celebrate with that, but we have a lot to figure out too. And I know that since we're so close to the election, all the analyses, and there will be zillions of them, are in their infancy. But given your expertise, I'd love to hear your thoughts at this stage in the process. So that said... First, why don't you tell us about your background in politics and polling and what you're doing today? I mean, in other words, why am I talking to you about this? Well, I began my career as a political pollster way back when working for an audacious Congress named Ed Koch, who wanted to be the mayor of New York. I worked for Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, Mike Bloomberg, and really invented sort of the whole polling era and took it from something that was done once in a while to where polling became an important part of our daily life and how we interacted. I then took the lessons from the campaign trail and applied it to business and started working at Edelman Burland with Edelman Public Relations and understanding how do you apply polling to communications in a business setting. And now I'm at my third startup called Decode M where we decode data into momentum. And I've gone beyond polling and really looking at analytics, both behavioral, social media analytics, to inform how brands, politicians, people can get momentum for their brand every day. Given your background in polling and as a strategic political advisor, let's start by talking about polls. So as I said, the great news is that Trump lost, but Biden just squeezed by. I mean, yes, he won the popular vote by a lot, but he, in the important battleground states, it was really a squeaker and there was no landslide like we were expecting. And as for everything down the ballot, there was certainly no blue wave. I mean, in fact, many Democrats we hoped would win were crushed. We don't know yet about the Senate, but it's not looking like a slam dunk, even close. And we kept our House majority, but lost at least eight seats and I think potentially up to 13. 
State races were even worse, a huge disappointment to many people expecting to see state houses flip and supermajorities broken. So I'm sorry for all that negative news, but <laughs> what happened? I feel like this is deja vu all over again to 2016. Why were the polls wrong or were they wrong? Nancy, this was nothing like 2016. And the expectations were actually in the wrong place. There were three factors that were going on in this election. One, this election was always Trump versus Trump. He's been the incumbent president for the past four years. He has a record. And Joe Biden wasn't really part of it ever. That's number one. This was Trump's to win or to lose. And the election was about that. Number two is I don't think that there was ever momentum for Joe Biden. If we look at how we went through the Democratic primary system, he had a big win in South Carolina. A couple candidates, uh, Buttigieg, Kovachar, dropped out and sort of propped him up into Super Tuesday. So he's got their momentum forces pushed him up. And then he won Super Tuesday. Bloomberg drops out. And then it was Biden versus Sanders. And Bernie Sanders got COVIDed out. The Democratic primary basically stopped. And Sanders and that whole progressive wing never got to make their case. Biden just won by default. And so then we get to June or July when Biden is the nominee and his whole campaign was a play it safe. And then the third factor why this is different than 2016 is that Hillary Clinton by 2016 was a very known candidate an entity, and she was polarizing even with the Democratic Party. So let's take out the Republicans and the independents. Hillary polarized Democrats, and I love Hillary. I worked with her in 2000. I worked with her in 2008. I think the world of her, but was she the right person for the time? Maybe not. She had as much baggage as Donald Trump did. And so this was a very different election and I think it basically came down. Do you know who won 2020? COVID. COVID won this election. And we now look at President-elect Biden, and we're very optimistic that he can deal with the single most important issue facing our country, which is the coronavirus. So basically, you're kind of saying it's like that bumper sticker, anyone but Trump 2020. And Biden was in the right place at the right time when COVID hit. and. He didn't have momentum then in the primary season, but he got it because of the coronavirus and because of the rest of the Democratic Party coalescing behind him. Everybody, all the forces came together. In our momentum analysis, Biden only had momentum the last week of the campaign, where when I think all the Democrats had already voted because they voted by mail or they early voted, there was some speculation. And Trump had perhaps the worst summer of any president, certainly any presidential candidate with an economy that was absolutely destroyed. He had a, you know, he had a bad nomination, a bad debate. Then he got COVID himself. I'm not sure that, I mean, worse things could have happened. And Biden still barely won. But that still leaves the polls. It still leaves the polls that we're leaving. Maybe we were misreading them as average citizens who aren't well-versed in sort of understanding this kind of data. But we still thought that people like Sarah Gideon were going to win in Maine 
or some people even thought Jamie Harrison was going to win in South Carolina. That was ippier, but were we wrong? Were we just like, is that wishful thinking? Or is that what the polls were telling us and how are they misleading us? I think using the polls to project winners of an election is a very bad use of polls. Using polls to understand prioritization of issues, using polls to understand some targeting, they are wonderful. Using them to be predictive of an election that requires so many dimensions of turnout, of competitive dynamics, they've never been good at that, especially at the size of the polls that you are looking at. So within the campaigns, they have wonderful polling that's done on a state-by-state, district-by-district level where they are tying it to the voter file. And those polls are fantastic. Those polls are also incredibly expensive and comprehensive. So if you're going to spend $10 million on polling, you will get fantastic results. If you're going to spend $10,000 on polling, you'll get nice directional polls that could give you sort of some false positives. Look, I think in Maine, for instance, the best thing that Susan Collins did is when she went against the president and that really helped her get the phone. And they let her go because they didn't need her votes. Mitch McConnell is a savvy guy. They let her go because they had the votes for Justice Barrett. They wanted to retain the Senate. They knew that Trump going after her would increase her popularity within Maine. I think the Republicans were very shrewd on that and they knew the calculation. And Trump took the bait. They set him up and he attacked her. And that's exactly what she needed to win. So the problem with polls when they are used to predict winners, which you say is not a good use of them, is that people then adjust their voting behavior around that. So they may say, I'm going to vote for Biden at the top of the ticket, but then I'm going to make sure I vote for all Republicans at the bottom from there down because I'm a Republican and I don't want them controlling the Senate. Well, that was pretty effective if that was someone's strategy. But in 2016, I think some people may have said, Hillary's going to win. I can't stand her. And therefore, I'm going to vote Republican all the way down, even if I'm a moderate or I don't even have to be that hardcore of a Republican. And so we ended up with this total whammy of a surprise where the Republicans just swept everything. So it seems to me problematic to have people rely on polls the way they do. What's the solution for that? Well, first of all, the issue is understanding what a poll is and what a poll isn't, and acknowledge that the media are using polls for content and that it's the cheapest content that they can create. It's like reality TV in the sense that they have a villain, they have a plot line, and they work it through. And these polls are not scientific enough to achieve the objectives that they say they can achieve. Now, do I think that polls do voter suppression or change how people think? Only if people allow them to. Like They should be informed by what's going on and what are the issues that matter, but it shouldn't impact their vote. Their vote should be impacted by understanding a candidate's take on an issue, what their objective is, and the direction of where they want to see whatever a state, a country, wherever go. Another place that polls don't work, Nancy, is Israel. There are other places where the polls say Netanyahu's going to lose, and he always wins, because maybe it's not socially correct to say you're going to vote for Netanyahu. Perhaps there's a reluctance 
to do that. Maybe those voters don't participate. So I think we have genuine polling flaws for how we're trying to use them. So in the future, we should put them in context a little bit better. And there should be an effort to do It's hard to fight the big media on this if they want to use them that way. But give me some examples of the best possible use of polling. The best possible use of polling, understanding the issues that matter to different constituencies, understanding who is supporting an issue and why, and what types of messaging a candidate can use to get their policies to be understood. So when I worked for President Clinton, he used to say that people think that I'm a poll-driven president doing issues and solving and putting policies that polls support. He said, I come up with the policies. I use the polls to find ways to express it. So if I have a program for education, am I preparing students for the 21st century? Am I investing in the future? What will allow voters to understand what that policy is, is a wonderful use of polls. I, in my own business, we conduct polls to understand the why but we don't use polls to understand the what. And that's the difference. And Democrats particularly need to start to understand the why better and stop concentrating on the what. That's why they keep missing the electorate because they think they know better and put together policies that are not necessarily in sync with where their voters are. This is now two cycles in my mind that the Democrats have lost. Yes, Joe Biden is the president. Thank goodness. But we don't have the Senate. We didn't do as well as we wanted to in the House. This is a major screw up. We didn't get to, we lost support among Latino, Latinx voters. This is not a successful. So it's not a polling issue. It's a Democrat issue in your view. It's a Democrat, which the Democrats have had this issue on and off for years. This is, I think the best moment of the 2020 election was seeing Barack on stage and just saying, oh, it was a lot better when he was president. That was the most magical moment for me because we're sort of over the Clintons. We're past Bill and Hillary. Like those are best days behind. But I think we still have this yearning for Barack and Michelle. And I think that they've come out of this actually, I think, well, his book comes out today, how excited is that? But I think Barack and Michelle are going to have a profound impact given the connectivity that Biden had with Obama. I think we're going to see a lot of the Obama people come into the administration, which could be a very positive sign. Just to finish up on that last answer you gave, when you said Democrats need to focus on not jamming, it sounded to me like you were saying not jamming the what down people's throats. (laughs) What is that what? Give me an example of that what in this election. They're trying to jam down. We know better than you. Here are the policies that are going to work. The biggest one I think that caused them the issue is defund the police. I mean, that was single-handedly the most tone-deaf policy because Americans understand the need to have structure. I'm not going to get into policing, but they understand the need to have some structure. They understand that we need reform, but defunding the police is not something that we universally agree is the best way to police reform. So if we acknowledge that it's not perfect, 100%. Is defunding the way to get there? That can be scary for all of us, no matter where you live, which demographic, all of that seems like, what does that mean? 
is that a lawless society? Like that's, you have to understand that it's such a sophisticated phrase that you then have to decode what is defunding the police really mean? What does community policing look like? That was a very complicated issue that then got twisted and manipulated so that it became scary and meaningless at the same time. I hear you. Okay, so you mentioned you've written a book on the subject of momentum called Maximum Momentum. Tell me about that and a little bit about your theories on momentum. I was interested at coming out of politics. The one thing that all of us political consultants know is that you have to have momentum going into election day and your momentum needs to peak on election day for you to win. Hillary's problem in 2016 is her momentum peaked a week before the election. And she got taken down by James Comey. Like there are a lot of competing factors that came in, but she peaked about a week early and Trump peaked right on election day. And it got me to thinking that momentum was always this concept that we talked about as an emotion. I have momentum. I've lost momentum. I can feel it. But it wasn't quantified in the way that we were doing it in media and politics. And yet physicists have always had a definition. Going back to Sir Isaac Newton, momentum was mass times velocity. And so as I found that polling was becoming a little bit old school and you ask a question, you get an answer, so much data was available, could we actually use the existing data to quantify momentum? What would be the metric for mass and what would be the metric for velocity? And so I created something called M-Factor, which is a metric of cultural relevancy so I can measure any brand, any politician, any product, and understand what was their mass, how many people knew them, what their awareness, and then what was their velocity, what was their engagement and polarization, where I didn't have to ask any questions. I could use existing data sources that were out there. I could use social media content. I could use forums. I could use blogs. And so get to a much broader audience and use millions of pieces of data. And I then wrote a book about it and really captured that it's all about momentum. And if your mass is high and your velocity is low, which is Biden, everybody knew him, but nobody thought he was going anywhere, then that's, that's a problem. And if your velocity is high and your mass is low, that's a brand or a person or a politician who's taking off. And that was the theory of- So the- what was Trump? So you talk about election day, where were they in terms of momentum? It was interesting. Biden's momentum from June until mid-October was exactly the same. Never moved. I've never seen anything like it in my life. He just looked steady Eddie. Trump was going up and down, getting, I mean, he was dealing with all these issues. I mean, from the time, look, he, we go over his administration. The guy had the Mueller report, so he had a special investigator. He got impeached. He had a COVID crisis. He had an economic crisis. Trump was going up and down the whole way. And towards the end, five days out, Trump was starting the hockey stick up and then Biden hockey stick up. So I knew the whole time that the election was extremely close and I could see Biden pull ahead on Sunday was when his momentum started to move in the right direction. Was there something that triggered that or was it just popular opinion or? 
I think people were talking about how they had voted for Biden. Like the Democrats were starting to talk about it and there was increased excitement. The Trump voters always had a plan to vote on election day. And so they were all starting to talk about how we're going to vote on election day. That's the day we're going to win. We don't trust mail-in voting. We don't trust early voting. So it was very clear that that was their strategy. And as he started doing those rallies, people were making a lot of fun. His momentum was clicking up every day he would do a rally. He would go to Traverse City. His momentum clicked up. He went to Lehigh in Pennsylvania. His momentum. So he was building momentum through those rallies in those communities. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so to some degree, the move because of COVID and because of just general, like in New York, there was early voting for the first time because Democrats being elected to the Senate in 2018. So the move towards early voting, either because the state had trended more Democrat or because of COVID, had something to do with Biden's momentum. That's interesting. Like people just saying, I voted for him. hundred percent. And also... I think if it were just an election on election day, Biden could have lost because the Trump vote was coming out, which is what happened in 2016. The Trump vote was reliable and the Biden vote, Democrats always have the best intentions, but they don't always show up. And here in New York, you remember what happened in 2016, the horrific line. We see what happens in some states that have very strict voter regulations where they turn people away. I think the early voting and the mail-in voting definitely helped elect President Biden. Absolutely. Okay, so we talked about coronavirus a little bit. And obviously, that has led to a year of tremendous change and uncertainty. Of course, change creates disruption, but it also creates opportunity. What impact has the coronavirus had on political momentum this year outside of the presidential race or political movements, say? The most impactful sort of, I think, benefit for people will be, don't take it for granted that this is all very important, that there's a new level sort of understanding what the impact of government is. There's a new empathy for frontline workers. So coronavirus has impacted how we work, how we go to school, the need for a healthcare system. I think, I think it's really focused. We were in a little bit of la-la land it's the same sort of instability that we might have felt going into 9-11, that this can't happen here. And yet we're going to have a full year of some sort of quarantine. And then we're going to come out of it not the same. People always say, well, we're going to get back to our routines. I'm like, which routine are we getting back to? The way we travel, the way that we walk the streets, masks might be with us for their foreseeable future. And you know what? I feel better wearing the mask. I feel like it's a responsible thing to do for myself. It's a responsible thing. On the subway, why not? On a plane, why not? Maybe I don't need it in Central Park, but I definitely, as a courtesy, so that's going to change behaviors. And I think it changes expectations of our elected officials. It's a reason that I think AOC is coming off a little bit tone deaf, that she's still pushing some of her progressive ideas when we have bigger issues to deal with, that we need to sort of unify and support our president to first and foremost get through this crisis, and then we can get on to other parts of our agenda. I'm thinking about momentum for how we move forward in a couple of different ways. For instance, 
I feel like momentum, I see some momentum for various political movements that actually unite us across the political spectrum, like, for instance, that Montana and South Dakota just voted to legalize marijuana. That was surprising to me. That seems like that's something that people in Vermont and Washington have in common with them. Or the fact that Florida, even though they went very red in terms of their candidates, voted to increase the minimum wage up to $15 an hour. So is there any way to harness the energy of momentum for things like that? Where I mean, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with legalization of marijuana. That's a side topic. But for things that unite us and to bring us together, move us forward in some direction, try to heal the wounds. We're seeing the momentum for good, practical ideas that move us forward. I think the, the broad legalization of marijuana is because we've seen in states like Colorado and in Washington, Oregon, that it didn't lead to social issues. It led to controlling something that was illegal, which now we can bring out to the front. It creates a great tax base and didn't have it back. We might see, I think with minimum wage, we need a living wage and it doesn't kill business. And so the momentum for ideas, the challenge, Nancy, is when I see something that has a momentum of 10 and is surging, that's before people realize how big it is. When something has momentum of 40 or 50, that means most people know about it. And by the time it comes to 100, it's everywhere. So these good ideas that seed and then sort of get momentum and start to cross the country, cross different political groups and different voters, I think are acknowledgement that they can transcend typical partisan political issues. It's not red or blue. It's just good policy. So speaking of that kind of thing, like having momentum work in ways that we find socially beneficial, and I'm not a data person, I'm really a doer. And I think the people who are listening to this are also, a lot of them are also doers. How do we harness the power of momentum for political causes that we believe in? I can think of many other policy areas like gun control or climate protection that are just waiting in the wings for their moment. I mean, my God, like, why can't climate protection have some more momentum than it does? Do we have to be whipsawed by momentum or is it something that we can create? One of the issues that we have with gun control and with climate is we acknowledge the issue, but we don't acknowledge the solution. The momentum of the issue is there. The momentum for the solution is not. We vary. Different groups want different levels. So how do you get a baseline solution? And then how do you move it forward? It's a classic issue of what has been challenging us is we can't unite on what the solution is. We can acknowledge the issue, but how do we get support to come together? And it usually requires an articulation or a policy that we can all get behind. And then it broadens from that. It's interesting. Of course, I'm a Democrat, but the articulation of some of the solutions can go too far for me to solve an issue. So do we have to go to an extreme to start making progress? So this is like the defund the police, same argument. Exactly. We all can agree on police reform. hundred percent. There's no debate. We can all agree on certain sort of standards and things that are illegal. But how far do we want to go? And then we alienate people. Momentum in politics is usually a very clear articulation 
of a single idea. I think what President Obama did, which was so wonderful, is he gave us a sense of optimism that things could change and that things could be different. And then he tried to work away. Now, did he get everything done that he wanted? Did he do everything that we would have liked to? Absolutely not. There's so much more work to be done. With President Biden, we want coronavirus to be under control. That's the single biggest mandate. But do we want a national lockdown for six, eight weeks? I don't know. That might be pushing it too far. So how are we going to get there? Can we live with a national mask mandate? Probably. So what are the steps that can get us along before you overreach? Because once you overreach, then you get all this divisive and protest and what have you. And that's the big issue is how far does it go? Trump had this issue. Went too far in so many, like, do you remember, this is going to seem like ancient history, but one of the first things Trump did is he did the Muslim bans. I mean, where does this come from? That was so extreme as a first act and the whole country just exploded. I mean, even if we wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, trust was forever broken at that moment. And he never came back. With certain people. Yes, there's 71 million people who say he did come back. But that was a very strange moment for many people. It was definitely scary. I think it confirmed people's worst fears of what this administration could be when we were still hoping, oh, he was going to be more reasonable than he had played himself to be on the campaign trail. Correct. Okay. So, but for those of us who are trying to find solutions, who are working towards positive change in society, do I take it that your advice is... Don't go too far. Don't push it too far. Find the middle ground. Meet in the middle. Is that? If I have a strength and a weakness, is I believe in incremental change as the most effective way to get things done. I'm not always the most popular guy, but it does work. Americans in particular do not like wholesale changes. They don't swing so far. It's a country that's basically moderate with extremes on both sides that we both know but the vast majority are in the middle. And so how do you bring along everyone so that you can get things done? I mean, I agree with you just on the big picture in general. I mean, democracy doesn't work that well if we can't meet in the middle. It's about consensus. And I think it's about finding that again. So I'm hoping that we can get there as a country. Anyhow, Mike Berland, thank you so much for joining me on New Faces of Democracy and sharing your wisdom and expertise. It's been great talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. <laughs>